1 Timothy 6, verse 1, Paul says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved, teach and exhort these things. And Father, we ask for just the help and the grace of your Holy Spirit who inspired these very words, that he would also now be our instructor to understand what it is from this portion of the word of God you would want to say to us this morning. Give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive, Lord, and bless your word. And we ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, living during the 1700s, which certainly was a much more difficult time uh, to navigate and to survive under, uh, a man named uh, Philip Stanhope, who also was referred to as Lord Chesterfield, was writing letters to his son and advising him on different topics. And this is a quote of one of the things that he said to his son in that time back in the 1700s. He said, in truth, Whatever is worth doing at all is worth doing well. And nothing can be done well without attention. I therefore carry the necessity of attention down to the lowest of things. Now, today we've kind of shortened that phrase from that quote, and we've probably all heard before, is something's worth doing it's worth doing, we either say right or worth doing well. Anything that's worth doing is worth doing right, it's worth doing well. That pulls from that quote from back into the 1700s. Now, let me ask this morning, when you do any task or when you work at anything, is that honestly your mindset? Is your mindset governed by that reality of giving attention to whatever it is you're doing the lowest of tasks, the most important of responsibilities, that whatever you do, if it's worth being done, that it's worth being done well, and it's worth being done right. And I want to say this morning, if you and I claim to be a Christian, according to what I read in the Word of God, that should be our mindset. That should be our approach. I think that's one of the things, clearly, that this text in God's Word is addressing here that all of our work should be done for the Lord as a reflection of him wanting to honor him in all ways because we represent him. Now, the backdrop of verses one and two of chapter six really kind of connects back to really all the way back to the beginning of chapter five, where from the beginning of chapter five, Paul's been addressing, talking, giving instruction, how the local church is to conduct itself. He's been talking a great deal about relationships and how we as God's household, God's family, are to relate to one another in the family of God. How we are to relate, he talked about, to older men as fathers and older women like they were our mothers, to younger women like they're our sisters and younger men like they're our brothers. He talked about how to relate in a sense in that idea to the opposite sex appropriately. He addressed in chapter 5 how to relate to widows 
those who were truly widows, completely alone, and in a sense, they represented those who were, in a sense, those in need, those who might need assistance. They're in a genuine, difficult place because of what they've endured. He talked about how to treat spiritual leaders. We saw that in great extent last time, and now he addresses, we might say, another category of relationships, and that's work relationships. What we often might view in our mind as employer, employee, boss, and worker. And this seems to be what he addresses as he kind of ties up this idea of relationships in verses 1 and 2. Now, as we look at what's described here, this instruction regarding bond servants and masters, and that's the term the Bible uses here in verses 1 and 2, context is very, very helpful. Under the Roman Empire, it's important to realize the existence of slaves or servants, as we might refer to them, was extremely commonplace in that society. In fact, it is estimated that during the time of the Roman Empire, there were some 60 million slaves or servants, bond servants, that were in existence under the Roman Empire. And that came from multiple different things contributing to that. For example, one major contributor to that was the Roman Empire with their military conquests, which was conquering much of the known world at that time, accumulated multitudes and multitudes of prisoners of war. And so because they were conquering so many territories, as the result of conquering in battles, they were taking many prisoners of war, land was being lost in territories where they would conquer people and nations and people groups, and then they would have to assimilate these people who lost their land into their society to find civil ways to do that, and much of that contributed to many of them becoming bond servants, working for masters and finding their provision that way by doing something that was still a way to, in a sense, stay occupied, and it sort of became a trade-off as a prisoner of war. Another thing that contributed to the bond servants in that day was many at times would sell themselves to pay off their debts. We see that referred to in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, where if someone fell into hardship financially or they could not pay off or satisfy a debt, at times they would allow themselves, in a sense, to be sold into what was called being a bond slave to kind of work off and pay off their debt through what they did. And then a third thing that also contributed to it is some of it was honestly just kind of just social status in successive generations, that if your father and mother were a bond servant and they never obtained their freedom, that as new children were born, then sometimes they would just remain a part of the same household with that going on. Now, important to recognize and to know that not all bond servants were treated horribly. They were not abused as instantly our mind may want to envision. We hear the word bond servant or slave, and right away our preconceived you know, prejudice walls go up and we think abused people and mistreated and hardship. Important to realize, and if you do a little history and get the facts, many of these bond servants held very highly privileged positions. Many of them actually had great authority. They had lots of responsibility and they were valuable stewards in the household of their managers. And they took care of their master's business affairs and their master's property and they were treated, many of them, very well by their masters. And they were looked upon as very reliable, important people. And they were taken good care of and valued. 
And for many people, understand it actually was somewhat of a good arrangement for them because what it did is it gave them routine guaranteed work and it also assured them lodging and food and provision and the things that they needed for their own survival or to take care of their family. Now, why the Bible never commands, nor does it encourage utilizing slavery as an ideal way for society, God's word in both Old Testament and New Testament does give helpful instruction to regulate and manage something that was a human-created thing that existed in the society, and God's word gives instruction how to manage what man had created in a humane and a proper way, why it was in existence in those times. Now, further, understand that when the gospel of Jesus Christ began to explode in the ancient world and life-changing relationship with Jesus was happening, and the love of God and the power of God was filling people's hearts, and the Holy Spirit was illuminating people's minds, and people were seeing Jesus as their true master. What that did was revolutionize the outlook on such matters as this, and it did change many things. The gospel drove out much of what existed and really eradicated in many ways the idea of bond servants and masters and eliminated really much of what this slave master way of operating in previous cultures had been doing for many years because many saw a much better and higher way to function. Now, that being said, understand as we look at these verses this morning that in that culture, this idea of bondservant and masters, the bondservants were basically like, we might say, the workforce of that day. And then the masters were, in essence, somewhat like the business owners of that day. So the closest thing we can find by way of application for ourselves is how it relates to employee and employer type work relationships that exist in our work settings, where an employee works and serves to fulfill the interests of their employer, their overseer, who in a sense has mastery over giving direction, and then that worker, that servant, receives compensation from their labor to provide for themselves by working under their master's responsibility. Now, that is, I think, the best way we can receive instruction and application from the passage in regards to how does this play out for us as many of us workers and employees for our bosses, our supervisors, and so forth. So look with me in verse 1. He begins by saying, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke, he says, Count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So the first instruction to the servants, those of us who we would call ourselves today employees or workers, the first instruction God gives is that the servant or worker should properly appreciate and respect both in attitude as well as in their actions, their labors, their performance, the person who supervises them in their work. You notice how he describes in verse 1 there, look at it. He says, bond servants who are under the yoke. That's a word picture, who are under the yoke. The yoke was the wooden device placed on the neck of the ox or the animal 
that would be pulling a plow in the field as they were accomplishing the work out in the field. So that animal working under the wooden yoke was under the direction and the control of an overseer who was guiding them in doing the things that they were doing. And so they were under the authority of someone else controlling them. And it was a picture of a work arrangement, being under the yoke, providing labor under the authority of a person's control and a person's direction. And the person who was guiding the yoke and the animal was in charge and the animal was operating according to what the one guiding the plow was wanting them to do. The animal was operating in a subservient way to the leadership of the one that was guiding them while they were under the yoke. Now, that's a picture of a work relationship. And it is a very fitting picture, really, of what we do in our work relationship, to always remember and keep a right perspective in your job as you're an employee somewhere, to keep the perspective that you work for someone. You work under someone. Whoever that may be who gave you the opportunity to work, that's giving you the in a sense, occasion to be able to perform the work that you do, that you work for someone, which means they are in charge. And just like the owner who was guiding the ox, who was under the yoke that was accomplishing the work in the field, if you work as an employee, that person who supervises, who oversees, has proper right to give directives, to call the shots, to order you what to do, to tell you what they want. And understanding and respecting authority is appropriate according to God's design in that role. Generally speaking, God's word always teaches that authority is to be honored by those who are under it, whether that's maritally, whether that's parent-child, whether that's government, and yes, even in the workplace. That authority is something not to be challenged, it's something to be respected and to be responded to. And so here he gives this picture. Servants, he says, who are operating under the authority and oversight of the one in charge. Look what he says, verse 1. They should count. The idea is consider or view their, their own master, their overseer, as worthy. That means properly deserving, he says, of all honor. That is, all respect in relationship and appreciation to how they're related to. And notice he says, consider them worthy of all honor. And I think that's helpful there because that means that we are to honor a supervisor in how you relate to them in your attitude. You're to honor an overseer or a boss as an employee, not just in your attitude, but how you speak to them, in how you operate when they give you a directive and what you do and responding to those directives and always were to seek to honor them. The bondservant understanding the work arrangement was to do whatever accomplished and fulfilled the master's wishes. That was their role, to conduct the master's business affairs with him and for him, and that's their foremost responsibility, to perform whatever work their overseer wanted done, but even more than that, to do it in the prescribed way that their overseer wanted it done. So the worker was to do what the master wanted, but he also was to do what the master wanted the way the master wanted it done, not how they think they would prefer to do it. And so this was very important. Again, the reason, because the worker is not the boss, right? The worker is the worker. 
the boss is the one who gets to make the decisions and determinations, and there are blessings and curses for any of you who have or are in an oversight position that go along with that role as well, right? And, and so the worker is to be subservient in an honorable way. They've given you an opportunity to work, and it is a stewardship and a responsibility and it's to be done in a way where the human supervisor is getting accomplished through you and his directives or her directives, what they want done and the way and how they want it accomplished, and we're to honorably respect that. And whatever work arrangement is in our job, that's how it applies. As employees, just like the servant and the master, that's how we should see ourselves. We should see ourselves to a degree as servants. And so we should operate in that way, in our jobs, as an employee, whatever work or vocation that you do, you should look at your overseer in that role. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve your interests, to accomplish what you want done, to do it in the way that you ask me to do it, according to your protocol and your design. Now, after addressing that, which is just simply right, he then gives a higher motivation for being a good worker. Look what he goes on to say, verse 6. So that, in other words, it's right to just do it, but then he adds the higher motivation, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. The idea is to be mocked or scorned. So how a Christian worker relates to the person in authority, the Bible says, gives a reflection about who? God. It gives a reflection about God, and not just God, but it also gives a reflection about his doctrine that is about the word of God and what God's word tells us. So if work by the servant was done well before his master's eyes, or if work by the Christian worker is done properly in a way that's respectful and submissive and faithful and reliable, and we're a hard worker, he says what that does is it protects God's reputation because we represent God, right? It protects God's reputation from being defiled, and it also protects the reputation of the doctrine and teaching of the Word of God from being scorned and being mocked by unsaved people. And so this is very important. As Christians, Christians should be the best workers and the most valuable employees in their companies. That would be the appropriate thing. We should have the best attitudes. Christians should bring an attitude to the workplace that has a clear contrast to all the unsaved people in the same workplace. It's the Christian who should have the best attitude that's respectful and loyal and cooperative, someone who cares about what they do with a serious attitude. The Christians should be the ones in the workplaces not complaining and not griping and not gossiping. And having an attitude where they're appreciative and grateful for the opportunity to work and they're a team player and manifesting the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and, and that we're bringing that in our attitude distinctively different as well as we should be not just best in our attitudes but best in our performance as far as the quality and the effort of how we all do our jobs and how we accomplish our assignments, that we would work with excellence and to a degree with excellence where it would be clearly contrasted to unsaved people that, hey, this person works in this way and it's interesting, they're someone who says they know God or they read God's word and it would have this beautiful reflection 
Christians should be those who are putting in that full effort and even more than that, the extra effort. The Christian worker should be the one arriving early and not late. The Christian worker should be the one who not only arrives early, but also is willing when need be to not just try and get out as quickly as possible, but if need be to stay late and to go the extra mile, to do the extra task, to be willing to go above and beyond what others do, being that reliable worker doing what it takes. And the Bible is saying if we do that, the wonderful thing is it represents God and the word of God. It protects God's reputation. And if we are working well as those best employees in the job place, our employer is going to recognize the distinction that we are a follower of God and that we claim to read and to follow the Bible. And they're going to realize in contrast to people who don't honor God and don't read the word of God. You know what? It's pretty impressive, I have to say. This guy or this gal who says they know God and follow God's word, honestly, is their boss. I'm pretty thankful they know God because they're one of the best employees I got. I'm pretty grateful that they read the word of God on their lunch break or they talk about the Bible because I have to say, that Bible is telling them some good things. They're one of my best employees. They're one of the most valuable people that we have in this company, and it gives a great representation and a great reflection. Now, when a Christian does the opposite of that, and sadly, if a Christian becomes a poor employee or a bad worker or a lazy worker or the type of employee who's got a difficult personality and is toxic in the work environment, knowing you're a Christian, that's going to cause people to do the exact opposite, right? It's going to cause them to think very negatively towards God and very negatively towards the world. They're going to start to scorn and mock the fact that you serve God or you apparently follow the Bible as completely worthless, right? That's what's going to happen. What's going to begin to transpire is whether it's the fellow employees or even worse, your boss or supervisor is going to start saying things like this, some help God and the Bible are in their life. I mean, they're the laziest worker we got. Or, or, or they complain more than anybody. Some help God is. And God's saying, look, please don't do that to me. <laughs> Either don't tell people you follow me because then people are going to blaspheme me because you're giving the indication that that's how I tell people to live that follow me. Or God says, if you're going to represent me, please represent me well, God's asking, so that I'm not mocked and instead I'm glorified and I'm attractive to other people. You know, I think it's a good reminder. As a Christian, our workplace becomes really, it truly does, our mission field. It is our local mission field to win people's interest, to say to people by just our attitude and our actions and our work ethic, taste and see. The Lord is good. It makes you a better person. It makes you better in all ways. And if you're a good worker, it becomes a great reflection of God and the things of God. If we become a poor worker as a Christian, it becomes a great disgrace and a bad testimony. So always remember, one of the best ways you can honor God, honor his word, and one of the best ways you and I can do ministry is the majority of our work week is to just be a good employee for the glory of God and to seek to represent him well. It's a powerful, powerful ministry right in the vocational world, which we need lots of. Now look what he says, verse 2. And those who have a believing master, now what's he referring to there? Those who are Christian employees who may have the advantage of actually having an employer or a boss or overseer 
who actually is a believer as well. Now, in the early church, understand, at times, bond servants or slaves and masters sometimes would attend the same congregation. In fact, sometimes among the same congregations, roles would be inverted. The boss and the master would be the boss at work, and the bond servant or slave may be the employee or the worker subservient during the work week, but then by the Holy Spirit's calling, maybe he calls the pastor or the elder or the deacon or the ministry overseer, and he calls the bond servant. And so in the house of God, the bond servant has the spiritual calling, and he's got authority in the church, and now they completely switch roles as they learn to function together, and, and this was a very common reality because the Holy Spirit can call whoever he wants. But the dynamic existed where at times there was that arrangement where a master may have a Christian, uh, a Christian boss or, or, or a Christian employee and vice versa, where that you know, Christian who was a bondservant may have a master or an employer who was over them who actually, they had the blessed arrangement, hey, my master is actually a believer. My boss, he's a like-minded individual. And what a blessing, you know, to have that spiritual bond, to have the same value system, the same ruler that you're serving, and typically to share maybe another level of relationship beyond just a work relationship. There was that bond because of the spiritual connection. And what he warns about here, notice, is if that arrangement exists and that the worker or servant has a believing master, a Christian boss, he says, let them, verse 2, not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So he says, look, if, if the servant has a master that's a believer, he says, it's important to be careful that you don't despise that overseer just because they're part of your spiritual family. Now, the word despise means to devalue or to think lower of than what is right. And it's a caution here, to the Christian worker who, if they are blessed to have a Christian boss, it's the caution not to let yourself become disrespectful or take advantage of them just because they're a Christian boss. And apparently, God addresses this because he knows this must be a human temptation. And that's why he addresses it in his word, to know that this is a possible error, where if someone has a Christian boss, they can begin to slack off during work or become a little bit too social rather than being functional and accomplishing tasks. And maybe, hey, well, I'm doing spiritual things. I'm witnessing to you know, our customers. Well, that's great. Do that after 5 p.m. And now, look, if you have a Christian boss who says, hey, I don't mind if you get it, but you better make sure your boss is okay with that. And not just assume because they're a Christian that while they're paying you, they want you doing spiritual things just because they're a Christian boss when they have a company to run and things to be accomplished efficiently, or maybe thinking because they're a Christian, they'll be more merciful or gracious or extra patient and basically abusing their kindness. Hey, I mean, we're brothers in the Lord. I mean, he'll understand or she'll understand. We're spiritual family. And God says, no, 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 that's disrespectful. You're despising and being rude. And he says, that's not what God desires, to treat them in that way. Apparently, again, God's addressing this because it is a temptation that we must guard against if you find yourself in a situation where you have a Christian boss, that you don't get too loose and sloppy in the work arrangement. Just be careful that the Christian fellowship that may be a wonderful blessing does not become a stumbling block, and it does not begin to muddy the waters in a way where your attitude or motivations or how you relate 
or your work performance or your work expectancies get diminished because you're kind of just getting too loosey-goosey and thinking, oh, they're merciful, they're a Christian, and, and God says, don't do that. That would be despising in a wrong way. And always remember, they may be your Christian brother at church, but at work, they're your boss. And so we should always be keeping that idea in mind. Now, rather than abusing the dynamic, which apparently could happen, and God cautions, God says, look, let me give you an incentive to a much higher thing. He says, don't abuse that situation, but rather, what's he say, verse 2? Serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So we should actually see that occasion as the very thing that motivates what? A higher degree of work excellence. That if you have a Christian boss or a Christian employer, the idea is what we are doing to help them and generate profit for that boss or this company, it benefits, he says, a Christian. We're benefiting a Christian and someone that we love. So instead of trying to get away with doing less, honestly, God says we should be motivated to do more. We should be inclined to want to do even better than if we were working for a secular-owned business or a non-Christian supervisor. Again, secular employers mainly, typically, just care about money and profit margins uh, and doing what they can to serve their own interests. And a lot of times, they abuse and take advantage of their employers or employees and simply make rules and do things according to whatever serves their interests best. And he's saying, look, if you have the privilege to get to work for a believing overseer as a Christian, or he says, that is something, you should have a much higher outlook. You should say, wow, I should be a good employee, but if I get a chance to be a good employee for a Christian boss, what I do to benefit them and benefit the company, they have a much higher outlook, hopefully, as a believer. I'm going to benefit in a much better way from my hard work because the profit it will produce will benefit a believing follower of Jesus. And again, helping them generate money creates wealth that goes into the stewardship of what? Some pagan person who's going to use it for horrible things in the world? No. Generating them wealth is going to go into the stewardship of a Christian who has hopefully a kingdom mindset and cares about people and looks at things differently and in most cases will use their money for good and godly purposes if their company prospers, that they will have a much higher view, that perhaps there's a higher and much better chance, and I can't guarantee that because I'll just say very candidly, I've seen some Christians prosper and excel and, and make more money, and some Christian companies excel and prosper and make more money, and you watch over time, and all you see is nicer stuff. And they get the vacation homes and the nicer houses and the nicer toys and the nicer cars. And, 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 and again, and I'm not saying this because I know because I don't see who gives in the church. That's, that's not what I'm saying here. But at times, I would venture to say from what I see and I observe that there are some who are spending way more money on blessing themselves than they probably are blessing the Lord and using their additional resources for the kingdom of God. And that's really sad. And so I'm not saying there's a guarantee, and I want to say that as a disclaimer, but I would hope the greater majority of the time, and it's why God's saying this, that if you are working for a Christian boss and generating money for them and higher profits in that company, you have a Christian overseer, the probability is going to be way, 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 way higher that they're probably going to take money and use it for what? To honor the Lord. 
and maybe to utilize their resources for the work of God's kingdom or for missionaries or to contribute to the work of God in different ways or to help people with sincere needs, with a gift of giving and realizing, hey, our company's doing well or I'm doing better. And so, and they're praying and looking for ways to bless people and to help people. Or even at times, perhaps if they're a believer and they're able to you know, have a greater amount of resources as a Christian overseer or company owner, maybe they can be way more generous to their employees and pay better wages and take care of families and do things on a higher level because they're only not thinking about profit margins, but they're thinking about, hey, how can we bless families and take good care of people who work for us and so forth? So again, whatever we do, the thing he's prompting us is that we would do well, and all the more, he says, if it's for believers. Galatians 6.10 says it this way, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Now, since we have a shorter passage and a few extra moments before we do communion here, I want to just briefly consider a companion passage on the same subject. So if you'll, to the left, just a few pages, and that's all it should be, go over to the book of Colossians. And again, it's just a few books to the left. Don't turn too fast. Just a few pages is all you should probably have to turn. And look at Colossians chapter 3. And this is really a companion passage on the same subject of this idea of work or employee-employer relationships. Colossians 3, verse 22. I love the sound of Bible pages flipping. It's just, yeah, I mean, like, it's one of those things. Pastoral ears, it's beautiful. Colossians 3, verse 22. He says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. What's that concept? Unless we're asked to do something that is unscriptural or is unethical, we should obey whatever our employer or boss asks. Obey in all things, whether we like the task, whether we think it's fair, whether we think someone else should do it, whether we agree, whether we want to do it that way or not, he says, obey in all things. They deserve our obedience. We should do that. They have rightful authority to give us directives. If it does not violate scripture or is not unethical, we should obey in all things. It's the right way to relate. It's what honors God. He says, verse 22 going on, and not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So notice, beware of only working efficiently and hard when? When the boss's eye is on you. <laughs> when they're keeping track, doing little or less, when no one's eye is on you, and then shifting gears, when all of a sudden the boss is conscious and seeing what you are doing. Look, there may be times when we don't have direct human oversight in our work at our job. But let me say, you always still have someone who's overseeing what you're doing. That's the divine supervisor. It's called God. And so though we may not have human oversight, we always have God's oversight, and we don't want to become a man-pleaser trying to just impress the boss when really we know they're looking because that's just a selfish and a wrong motivation. Out of fear of God, sincerely, we should always keep ourselves accountable and have a conscience. 
right? Whether the boss is looking or not, have a conscience and work as unto the Lord, the idea is. Verse 23, he then says to us next, and whatever you do, and this attaches to what I just said, whatever you do, do it heartily, that is wholeheartedly, the best you can, as to the Lord for him, and not like you're working for a man. So what's the standard to utilize in all that we do in our work? God just says, do it well. Do it with all your heart. And look, not just in some things, and then other things were careless and sloppy. Do you see what he says? Look at verse 23. Whatever you do. Remember our quote at the beginning? I carry attention down to the smallest and lowest of details. So not just I do this with all my heart, but this, I mean, that's just whatever. I mean, that's just stacking paper plates, or right? You know what I mean? Where we just, this is really important, but I mean, this is, I'm just putting stuff on a shelf here. Or, no, no, whatever you do, whatever you do, you do it the best that you can with all your heart because you're doing it not really for the standard of a man. He says, we're doing it for the standard of our master, for Jesus, that we want to please him and we want to honor him. That should be our drive. Lord, are you pleased with how I did this? That's the standard we want to use. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve, notice, not just your boss, you serve the Lord Christ, even in our job place. So if we're truly serving the Lord, he's a good master. He will always make sure that we're rewarded. I can't control how your human master controls those decisions of rewarding you, but the Lord says, if you do things unto me the right way, I will make sure that you get rewarded accordingly, whether on earth, whether in heaven, but he will reward and we work as unto the Lord. And look what he says, verse 25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he's done and there is no partiality. So notice the Bible cautions the believer not to think that they're above disciplinary action if they should do something that is wrong. In all honesty, as a Christian, truth be told, we know better. We should have a higher ethical standard. We should have a higher sense of consciousness in what we do. And if we do something wrong, we do not deserve special treatment just because we're a Christian. We do not deserve to be removed from a degree of disciplinary action or correction or even, as he says here, punishment that would come from the master if what is done wrong. Now, that being said, let me say, I think that gives a beautiful way to transition into communion this morning because as Christians, we serve the Lord Jesus foremost. Oftentimes in the New Testament, Paul calls himself a bondservant of the Lord. And as the Lord's people, he is our overseer. We belong to him. He has rightful ownership over us. And whatever we do, we're to do seeking to please him and take our directives from him and honor him for his purposes to be accomplished. Yet the reality is from time to time, just like the employee, we don't honor the Lord. And at times we may fail. Maybe our attitude's wrong, or we don't appreciate serving the Lord the way that we should, or we don't obey the Lord, or we're not submissive to things we know His Spirit is prompting us to do, and we disregard the Lord's voice. Or at times, maybe flat out, we just do things completely wrong, and we just sin blatantly, and we deserve justly to be punished. But here's the wonderful thing. Unlike the employee who, when they do wrong, 
their master punishes them for their error. The wonderful thing is our kind master, the Lord Jesus, allowed himself to be punished for the things that you and I do wrong. He says, you know what? You deserve to be punished, but I'll actually be punished for you. And our eternal master doesn't repay us punishment for the deserved wrong things. He forgives us. He releases us from punishment. And instead, he rewards us with his grace instead. Let's stand.